0: Section 10 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording, All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 29. Paris, Friday, December the 8th, 1673. I must begin, my dear child, by telling you of the death of the Count de Guiche. This is the chief subject of conversation at present, poor youth died of sickness and fatigue in Monsieur de Turenne's army. The news came on Tuesday morning. Father Bourdalou went to acquaint the Marshal de Grammont with it, who feared it the moment he saw him, knowing the declining state of his son. He made everyone go out of his chamber, which was a little apartment near the convent of the Capuchins, and as soon as he found himself alone with Buralu, he threw himself upon his neck, saying that he guessed but too well what he had to tell him, that it was his death stroke, and that he received it as such from the hand of God, that he had lost the true, the only object of his tenderness and natural affection, that he had never experienced any real joy or violent grief but through his son, He was not a common character. He threw himself on a bed, unable to support his grief, but without weeping, for this is a situation that denies the relief of tears. Baudelieu wept, but had not yet spoken a word. At last he began to comfort him with religious discourse, in which he employed his well-known zeal and eloquence. They were six hours together, after which Bodalu, to induce him to make a complete sacrifice, led him to the church of these good Capuchins, where vigils were said for his son. He entered the church fainting and trembling, supported more by the crowd that pressed round him on every side than by his feet. His face was so much disfigured with grief that he could scarcely be known. The Duke saw him in this lamentable condition and related it to us at Madame de Lafayette's with tears. The poor marshal returned at last to his little apartment, where he remains like a man under sentence of death. The King has written to him. No one is admitted to see him. Madame de Monaco is inconsolable, and refuses to seek company. Footnote Catherine Charlotte de Gramont, sister to the Count de Guiche, back to main text. Madame de Louvigny is likewise incapable of receiving comfort. Footnote Maria Charlotte de Castelnau, sister-in-law to the Count, back to main text. But it is only because she is not at all grieved. Do you not wonder at her good fortune? She is in a moment become Duchess of Gramont. The Chancellor's Lady, footnote, relic of the late Chancellor Segre and grandmother to the Countess de Guiche, back to main text, is transported with joy. The Countess de Guiche behaves admirably well. She weeps when they tell her all the kind things her husband said and the excuses he made to her when he was dying. He was a very amiable man, she says. I should have loved him passionately if he had loved me in the slightest degree. I suffered his contempt with grief, and his death affects me with pity. I always hoped he would change his sentiments with regard to me. This is certainly true. There is not the least fiction in it. Madame de Vernet, footnote Charlotte de Seguier, mother to the Countess de Guiche, back to main text, feels real concern on this occasion. I believe it will be sufficient if you only desire me to make your compliments to her. So you need only write to the Countess de Guiche to Madame de Monaco and Madame de Louvigny. The good d'Arcville has been desired to go to Fraise, thirty leagues from hence, to tell the news to Madame de Grammont, and to carry her a letter written by the poor youth a little before he died. He made a full confession of the faults of his past life, asked pardon publicly, and sent to Talvard a great many things which may benefit him. In a word, he ended the comedy well and has left a rich and a happy widow. Footnote, she was married afterward to the Duc de Dude in 1688. The Count de Guiche had been the lover of Henrietta of England. He also entered into the intrigues of Monsieur de Wardes. He had made a brilliant campaign in Poland and to him was owed the passage of the Rhine. He was as handsome and witty as he was brave. Back to main text. The Chancellor's Lady, his grandmother, is so fully sensible, she says, of the little happiness this poor lady must have had in her marriage that she thinks of nothing but repairing this misfortune. We are at a loss for a proper match for her. You will perhaps name for her Monsieur de Massillac as we did, but they do not like each other. The other dukes are too young. Monsieur de Foix is destined for Mamselle de roque Think a little for us, for the affair is pressing. I have sent you, my dear child, a tedious account, but you sometimes tell me you like minuteness. Letter 30, Paris, Monday, December 11th, 1673. I am just returned from Saint-Germain, where I have been two whole days with Madame de Coulange at Monsieur de La In the evening, we went to pay our court to the Queen, who said a thousand obliging things to me of you, but if I were to enumerate all the howdy-do's and compliments that I had, both from men and women, old and young, who crowd about me to inquire after you, I should have to name the whole court. And how does Madame de Grignon do? And when would she return? And so on. In short, only figure me to yourself in the midst of a crowd of idle people who, having nothing else to do, would every one ask me some question, so that I was frequently obliged to answer twenty at once. I dined with Madame de Louvois. It was Who shall be the first to invite me? I would have returned yesterday, but we were stopped by force to sup with Monsieur Massiac in his enchanted apartments with Madame de Tionge, Madame Scarron, de Duc, Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld, Monsieur de Vivonne, and Band of Heavenly Music. This morning, with much ado, we got away. A quarrel of a singular nature is the news of the day at Saint-Germain. The Chevalier de Vendôme and Monsieur de Vivonne are the humble servants of Madame de Louvre. The Chevalier expressed a wish of compelling Monsieur de Vivonne to resign his pretensions. But on what grounds, he was asked, why he would fight Monsieur de Vivonne? They laughed at him. "'It was, however, no joke,' he said. "'He would fight him. "'And he mounted his horse to take the field. "'But the best of the story was Vivonne's reply "'to the person who brought him the challenge. "'He was confined to his room by a wound in his arm "'and receiving the condolence of the whole court, "'ignorant of the threat of his rival. "I, gentlemen,' said he, "I." Fight? He may fight if he pleases, but I defy him to make me fight. Let him get his shoulder broken. Let the surgeon make twenty incisions in his arm, and then... This thought he was going to say we will fight, and then, said he, perhaps we may be friends. But the man must be jesting to think of firing at me. A pretty project, truly. He might as well fire at the door of a house. Would note Monsieur de Vivonne was remarkably corpulent. Back to main text. I repent, however, having saved his life in crossing the Rhine, and I will do no more such generous actions till I have the nativity cast of those I intend to assist. Would anyone have thought, when I was remounting this fellow on his horse, that a few weeks afterward, he would want to shoot me through the head for my kindness. This speech, from the tone and manner in which it was delivered, had so droll an effect that nothing else is talked of at Saint-Germain. I found your Siege of Orange very much magnified at court, the king had spoken of it very agreeably and it was thought highly honourable to Monsieur de Grignon that without the king's order and merely to follow him seven hundred gentlemen should have assembled upon the occasion. But the king having said seven hundred everyone else said seven hundred. It was added with a laugh that two hundred litters also followed him but it is thought seriously that few governors could have obtained such a retinue. I've had two hours' conversation at two different times with Monsieur de Pompon. He exceeds my most sanguine hopes. Mademoiselle de Lavacar is in our confidence. She is a very amiable girl. She knows all our affairs, the business of the syndic, of the procurator, our gratuity, position deliberation, etc., as well as she does the map of the empire and the interest of princes. That is, she has them at her finger's end. We call her the little minister. We have interludes in our conversation which Monsieur de Pompon calls flashes of rhetoric to secure the good humour of the audience. There are some points in your letters I cannot reply to, We often answer ridiculously when we write from such a distance. You know how grieved we once were at the loss of some town when they'd been rejoicing for ten days at Paris because the Prince of Orange had raised the siege. But this is one of the evils of distance. Adieu, my beloved child, I embrace you very affectionately. Letter 31 Paris, Friday, December the 22nd, 1673. A piece of political news is just come into my head and contrary to my custom, I shall give it to you. You know the King of Poland is dead. Footnote, Michael Karibut Vishnievsky, who died November 1673. Back to main text. The Grand Marshal, footnote, John Sobievski, Elected King of Poland, May 20th, 1674. He married the granddaughter of Marshal Darquin, who after his death returned to France. The victory Sabieski gained in 1685 under the walls of Vienna, and which saved the Emperor and the Empire, is still more celebrated than that which is here spoken of. Back to main text. The Grand Marshal, the husband of Mademoiselle Darquin, is at the head of an army against the Turks. He has lately gained so complete a victory over them that 15,000 were left dead on the field of battle. Two bashaws are taken prisoners, and he himself occupies their general's tent. After so distinguished a victory, it is not in the least doubted that he will be declared king especially as he is at the head of such an army and that fortune generally declares in favour of numerous battalions. This piece of news has given me pleasure. I never now see the Chevalier de Bois. He is enraged at not being made chef d'escadre, footnote a rank somewhat inferior to that of rear-admiral, back-to-main text. He is at Saint-Germain and I'm in hopes he will manage his affairs so well as to obtain his desire at last. I sincerely wish it. The Archbishop of Arles has written to assure me of the joy the affair of Orange has given him, and that he hopes that of the syndicate will end no less happily. He finds himself obliged to own by the event that your vigour was of more service than his prudence, and that from your example he has become a perfect bravo. This has rejoiced me exceedingly. And now, my dear child, when I picture you to myself pale and thin, when I think of the agitations you endure and that the slightest degree of fever endangers your life, I suffer night and day from apprehensions for you. What happiness would it be to have you with me? in a less destructive climate, in your native air, which would again restore you to health and vigour. I am surprised that loving you as the Provençals do, they do not urge this remedy to you. consider you as having been so useful till now, and as having relieved Monsieur de Grignon so much in all his affairs, that I dare not regret I did not bring you with me, But when everything is finished, why not give me this satisfaction? Adieu, my dearest child. I am very impatient to hear from you. You would throw yourself into the fire, you say, to convince me of your love. My child, I have no doubt of your affection, and without this extraordinary proof of it, you may give me a much more pleasing and a much more convincing one. Letter thirty-one, Paris, Friday, December the twenty-ninth, sixteen seventy-three. Monsieur de Luxembourg is a little pressed near Maastricht by the army of Monsieur de Monterey. Footnote: Governor of the Spanish Low Countries, back to main text, and the Prince of Orange. He dares not venture to remove his camp, and he must perish where he is unless they send him speedy and effectual succour, The prince is to set out four days hence with the duke and monsieur de Turenne. The latter is to serve under the two princes, and there is perfectly good understanding between the three. They have 20,000 foot and 10,000 horse. The volunteers and those companies which are not to march do not go, but all the rest do. La Trousse and my son, who arrived here yesterday, are to be of the number. They have scarcely had time to pull off their boots before they are in the mud again. The rendezvous is appointed at Charrois on the 16th of January. Dacville has written you word of this, but you will read it more distinctly in my letter. But note, M. d'Arcbill wrote a hand very difficult to read, back to main text. It is certainly very important news and has occasioned a great deal of bustle everywhere. We know not what to do for money. It is certain M. de Turenne is not on terms with M. de Louvois, but it is not generally known, and while he continues to keep in with M. Colbert, there will be nothing said about it. This afternoon I had some great folks with me who desired their compliments to Monsieur de Grignon and de Grignon's wife. They were the Grand Master and the Charmer. Footnote, the Count de Lude and the Duc de Villeroy, back to main text. I had besides Brancard, the Archbishop of Rheims, Charot, La Trousse, etc., who all in like manner decide to be remembered to you. They talk of nothing but war. The charmer knows all our affairs and enters admirably into our little perplexities. He is governor of a province, which is sufficient to give him an idea of our feelings on those subjects. Adieu, my dearest child. I participate in all the joys of your conquests. Paris Monday, New Year's Day, 1674. I wish you a happy year, my child, and in this wish I comprehend so many things that I should never have done if I were to enumerate them. I have not yet asked leave for you to return to Paris, as you feared, but I wish you had heard what Lagarde said of the necessity of your coming hither, that you may not lose your five thousand francs, and of what he thinks proper for Monsieur de Grignon to say to the king. If it were a suit which you were obliged to solicit against any one who desired to injure you, you would doubtless come to solicit it. But as it is to come to a place where you have a thousand other affairs, you are both guilty of the greatest indolence. Ah, what an enchanting thing is indolence. You feel its power too much. Read Lagarde upon this subject, chapter the first. Consider in the meantime that you would have the pleasure of seeing the king and receiving his approbation. The edicts are revoked, which gave us so much uneasiness in our province. The day that Monsieur de Chaum declared it to the States, there was a cry of, Long live the King, which made everyone present weep for joy. They embraced each other, broke out into the highest expressions of rapture, ordered Te Deum to be sung, made bonfires, and the thanks of the public were given to Monsieur de Chaum. But do you know what we are to give the king as a mark of our gratitude? Six hundred thousand livres, and as much more by way of a voluntary gratuity. What think you of this little sum? You may judge by this of the favor that has been done us in taking off the burden of these edicts. My poor son has arrived here, as you know. He is to return on Thursday with many others. Monsieur de Monterey is a very clever fellow. He disturbs the whole world. He fatigues the army and puts it out of condition to take to the field and begin the campaign till the end of the spring. The troops were all at ease in winter quarters and when, after a tedious march they are arrived at Chauois, he has only a single step to take to make good his retreat, till when Monsieur de Luxembourg cannot be extricated. By appearances, the king will not set out so soon as he did last year. If, when in the field, we had to make an attack on some great town or the enemy would come out and oppose our two heroes, as we should probably beat him, peace might almost be depended upon. This is what is said by persons of the profession. It is certain that Monsieur de Turenne is out of favour with Monsieur de Louvois, but as he is in favour with the King and Monsieur Colbert, it has not made much noise. Five ladies of the palace are appointed. Madame de Soubise, Madame de Chevreuse, the Princess d'Accro, Madame d'Abray, Madame de Rochefort. The maids of honour are to serve no more, and Madame de Richelieu, as a lady of honour, is also discharged. There are to be only the gentlemen in waiting and the maître d'hôtel, as formerly. But the queen may not be without women. Madame de Richelieu and the four other ladies are to wait constantly behind her chair. Bronca is in raptures that his daughter is so well provided for, would note the Princess Darcour back to main text. The Grand Marshal of Poland has sent a letter to the king in which he tells his majesty that if he has any person in view to raise to the crown of Poland, he will assist him with all the forces under his command, and if not, requests his protection and assistance for himself. The king has promised it to him. However, it is imagined he will not get himself elected because he is not of the established religion of the nation End of section ten